0: Today's passage is probably one of the most sweet, beloved, well-loved passages in all of Scripture. For some, that would mean it needs to be torn down. It needs to be analyzed to the point where it's really grounded, and it's, it's, all of our views of it get shut down. It's very typical. You want to be edgy. You want to do something unique. Go against what everybody's taught throughout history. The other thing that this passage lends itself towards is familiarity. It's a passage we've seen many, many times. As a matter of fact, out on our book table out there, we have a book called Gentle and Lowly, which we got a whole crate of, and I think everybody in here has one or two or maybe five, which you're welcome to take more. I got more out there. Please do that. But this familiarity also leads to grounding. This passage, which is meant to soar, which is meant to be the gospel in a nutshell, becomes, oh yeah, we, I remember, we, we know that passage. Yeah, come, yeah, weary, got it. Gentle, lowly, sure. See, the, the, the balance that needs to be navigated today is I need to let this passage do what it's meant to do, and I need to let you see it for how great it is. And this passage is not for those who don't know the Lord. And it's not not just for those who don't know the Lord. It's also not just for those who do know the Lord. It's for everyone everywhere. And so today, as we get into this, there is no grounding of this passage allowed. We must let this passage soar. We must let this passage sparkle. We must see it for as great as it is. I can think of no better passage for us to finish up our our look at the book of Matthew for this spring than this passage. What a great place to finish on. What hope. However, if I get up here and it's just gonna be me, then it's not gonna do what we need this passage to do. So I'm gonna pray, and as I'm praying, I would covet your prayers that this passage soars in our time together here. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, This passage is greater than me. This passage is greater than us. It's greater than all the commentaries and all the words that have been said about it. Because, Lord, it describes not only what you've done, but it describes your heart. Lord, help us to see this well. Help us to see this rightly. Help us to see this soaring passage and know that we get to yoke ourselves to you the Savior, the Son of God, the Good Shepherd, Emmanuel. Lord, help us to see this passage well. In your name, amen. So the big idea for this passage is pretty simple. Jesus invites us to know God and find rest. It's as simple as that. But it's so simple, yet so incredibly deep and complex there's a lot to this passage. There's so much here. As a matter of fact, my, my guy Charles Spurgeon said, no verse in all of Scripture has been handled in the pulpit more frequently than this one. And yet, it has not been exhausted and never can be. This is a great soul-saving text. Now, Spurgeon's not somebody who just says things. He puts his money where his mouth is. So, Spurgeon preached on this passage nine times. Actually, I take that back. He preached on verse 28, nine times. Now Spurgeon would preach for about a good hour each time. So by my count, that's nine hours for 16 words, about 33 minutes per word, is what he preached of those passages. And then he added another six sermons on this entire section that we are going into. So why is this such an important passage? Because it's the gospel. Verse 28 itself is, come to me like I came to you. Here's what you are like, I know, I feel it, I know it. Follow me and you will get rest. This is the gospel. This is the good news. If you're here and you don't know, salvation is available today. And it's as simple as coming to Jesus. For believers, Don't think this passage isn't for you. It's not a passage where I'm saved so I don't need to worry about it. We need Jesus more. Our yoke gets heavy. It's because we're probably trying to put another yoke on that doesn't need to be there. Jesus still wants to carry your burden whether you're a believer for a month, for 60 years, for 100 years, whatever the length of time that you've been a believer. He wants to carry your yoke. So today, let's... Let him carry the yoke. Let's see how great this promise is. So like I said, we're, we're finishing up Matthew right now. Um, what we do is over the summer, we join with a whole collection of churches around this area to preach through the Psalms. So next week we'll be in Psalm 87. The week after that, we'll have our final teaching of the women's retreat. We're gonna talk about the Bride of Christ, and then we'll get back into the Psalms for the rest of the summer. We'll get back to Matthew chapter 12, in September. So that's kind of our plan for the summer. So Psalm 87 next week. You guys can read ahead. You're allowed. Okay. So let's get into the context here. So this is our last look at Matthew. So we need to make sure we understand where this fits. Now, I am not going to unsweeten this verse by looking at the context. Instead, I think the context helps us see how sweet this verse is. So let's review a little bit of where we've been in Matthew 11. So Matthew 11, starting in verse 1 through verse 15, Jesus is is teaching disciples who have doubts. Specifically, he's teaching John the Baptist, who Jesus says there's no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet John the Baptist has doubts. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to have doubts. You're going to have suffering. You're going to have trouble. Verses 16 through 19, many ordinary people in Israel are blind to who Jesus is. They look at him and they go, I can't possibly be God. And they are hostile to him. God sends John the Baptist and they call him a fanatic. Israel is impossible to please at this point. So we see God's chosen people, the ones who should recognize him, are the ones who are resisting him the most. And then last week we saw Jesus pronouncing judgment. Because the people saw the miracles, and yet they said, nah, pass. I don't need that guy. So we've gotten through all these difficult teachings. These are not, this has not been easy the last few weeks. And now Jesus looks at it from a theological perspective, and he says, yeah, people are rejecting the kingdom, but God is still on his throne. God is still the Lord of heaven and earth. And Jesus says, thank you, Lord, that you are this one. So look at me with verse 25. Jesus offers a prayer here. This is a prayer of thanksgiving where he says, Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to the lowly. As we read it, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Isn't it sweet that Jesus prayed out loud. I find that really comforting because we get to hear how Jesus prays and how he communicates with God. We are getting a little snapshot of what Jesus has been doing for all of eternity. See, Jesus is a member of the Trinity and he's got perfect communication with God the Father, but yet he comes down to us lowly by comparison and he says, listen in as I talk to God. Isn't that sweet that he did that out loud? He had no reason to do that, but he did. So he says, thank you that you've hidden these things. Now, what are these things? Well, this is the, the fact that the kingdom is here. And for people who are the wise and the ones who pride themselves on their intelligence, it's hidden to them. Why? Because revelation must come from the Lord. And the Lord reveals himself to those who are humble. The word revealed is the word apocalypto. Which is where we get the the concept of the apocalypse, which just simply means the revealing. It's actually the Greek name of the book of Revelation. But yet, as Jesus is going through this time of judgment, where he judged last week, it was Chorazan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, he doesn't lose heart. In fact, he's thankful of the fact that God is still in control. He is still in control. God is not frustrated by people who won't repent, God's plans will come to fruition. It's not something where God's up there twiddling his thumbs going, please, I hope they like me. He is in control. And he says, you've hidden it from the wise and the understanding, but revealed it to little children. This word little children means innocent or those who are childlike. This is a metaphor. It's not to say we all got to start sucking our thumbs and get a binky or put some diapers on or something like that. That's not what this is talking about. It's not saying that the older you are, the less likely you are to understand. No, this is a metaphor. It's meant to say you need to be childlike. This means you are, you are the ones that the world would consider unimportant. You are the ones that the world would say you don't matter yet. You haven't done anything. That's the mindset we must adopt. Later on in Matthew 18, Jesus says that unless a person becomes turns and becomes childlike, They cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what does this mean? What this means is that first of all, we are wholly dependent on God for his salvation. Children cannot care for themselves. So we are dependent on God for our salvation. It is nothing that we do, have done, or could ever do that saves us. To those who think themselves too wise for God, lose out to those who have their true need. Now, some people look at this and they'll go, okay, wait a sec. So if I want to be like a child, then I should never go deep with my faith. So Jesus wants a childlike faith, so I just need to just believe it and no big deal, right? Just don't think about it. Just stay very shallow in my faith. Everything else is superfluous, right? I just want to be a baby. But this is getting the metaphor wrong. This is misunderstanding what this metaphor is. Children are not thoughtless or foolish. They're really not, if you think about it. They think very hard about things that are affecting them at that moment, right? So, for example, Dad, I'm, I'm really worried. I, got, I had a really big question, and I'm going, okay, that's why I went to seminary. Let's go. <laughs> why, why are the bad guys' lightsabers red? Now, why is that the question that comes out of my child's mind? Because he's been thinking and poring over that for days, trying to figure it out on his own. See, a child has a focus, and you, you get this as parents, if you've had kids for any amount of time, sometimes you try to get their focus off of the thing that they want to focus on onto the things that need to happen, like putting their clothes away, brushing their teeth, et cetera, et cetera. So children are able to focus, but it's to focus on the thing that is the most important to them. But at the same time, what does a child do when they hear a loud, scary sound? Boom, hand comes up to dad or mom. Boom, they run across and jump onto, probably most uncomfortably, onto you in your bed. So there's this childlikeness that we are to have with our faith. This metaphor is important for us to get. Ideally, a believer will have a child's heart with an adult's head. That's the picture we need to have. So this contrast is not between those who are self-sufficient and wise, but it's between those who are independent and dependent. Where are we with our independence? You know, I got this, God. I don't need your help. Okay, you did the saving part. I'll do the rest of it. Or is it, I can't do any of it. So who are these these that are entering into the salvation. Who are these childlike? Let me give you some comparisons. They are dependent, not independent. They are humble, they're not proud. They are helpless and they recognize it. They are empty and they know it. They are nothing and they are aware of it. So where are you on that spectrum? Are, Are you, have you come to the end of yourself? Have you gotten to where you realize you can't do it? See, this comparison that's being made here is those who are wise and think they are going to be able to figure it out and rationalize themselves to God, and then those that go, there's no hope for me, Jesus, save me. This is a comparison between works, yes, thinking deeply about God can be a work, and the grace of, I can't do it, Lord. This is a comparison between man's way to God and God's way to man. I like this quote. No one is so great that God needs them, and no one is so little that God cannot reach them. Verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This, this good pleasure, this is, this is letting us know what God gets pleasure from. God's good pleasure is to reach down to those who can't ever Even contemplate being able to reach up to Him and grabbing a hold of them and making them His own. The New Living Translation says, It pleased you to do it this way. God is pleased by us when we come to Him and we say, I can't do it. Lord, help. So now we look at verse 27. So 25 and 26 is the Thanksgiving prayer. And now Jesus is going to make a declaration to the crowd. And really, it's going to be a claim about the revelation. Look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So what this is, is this is a commentary on verse 25. So verse 25, Jesus is thanking God for what he's done, and now Jesus is explaining what he just prayed. He's saying, let me explain this to you. He says, all authority, that's what all things means. It means he has the authority over everything is given to him. And he says, this is important because no one knows the Father but the Son. This is important to understand that this is not mental recognition. This is not an acquaintance. Jesus knows the Father uniquely and intimately on levels we can never get to. For all of eternity, they've been knit together in perfect communion In perfect love. And this is Jesus' exclusive knowledge. He knows the Father so closely that only he is the one that can reveal the Father. It says, to whom the Son desires to reveal him. That word reveal means to unveil. So when Jesus comes, it's his job, it's his work to say this is what the Father's like. Remember, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the Father was so far away, he was unreachable. Everything's about distance in the Old Testament. Jesus has now brought God close and said, when you look on me, you're looking on the Father. So Jesus is the only way to the Father. John 14, 6 says this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now in our world, this is offensive, isn't it? Our world gets really, really upset about that statement. It's offensive to those whose religions or they have to work their way to heaven. Whether it's praying towards a certain building on a certain continent far away. Whether it's going to a temple where you do certain rituals to make yourself better prepared to go be a god. Whether it's door-to-door evangelism, hoping you can earn your way into the group that squeaks into heaven, trying to win God's favor. Or maybe it's like the non-religious people in our world I say non-religious because everybody's religious. They just don't meet in a church. The non-religious who say self is God. If you believe it, you are it. Whatever you want, whatever you want to do, you can do it. Oh, but if something bad happens, it's always somebody else's fault. And it may not be somebody alive right now. Maybe it's somebody in the past who did something who therefore made you not able to achieve how great you are. Our world worships self, and when we stand up and we say, no, no, sorry, you're not God, Jesus is, that's offensive. This is a a place where the world is going to fight back against us when we say Jesus is the only way, but it is the clear message of the Bible, and only those who are humble can hear it, those who are meek, those who take on the characteristics of Jesus, who are gentle and lowly. So we've got a thanksgiving prayer, we have a claim, and now we get to the invitation. Jesus appeals directly to the listeners and says, come to me and see, receive renewal. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me. He doesn't say, know the facts about me. He doesn't say, come to a building that has my cross on it. He doesn't say, buy all of these books about me. He says, come to me. This is about a relationship. This is the point not only of this passage today, but it's the point of the entire Bible. It's the point of everything we do in this building, at this church, as believers, is we want to come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus. So what does that mean? Come to Jesus. Is he somewhere here we can go be right by him? No. The word come here means believe. It means believe in me. Sometimes in the Bible it'll say, receive me. Other times it'll say, confess me, or hear me, or come to me. These are all the same idea. It is believe in me. Trust in me. And not just believe in me like, oh, I believe there was a Jesus no, it's believe as in put your trust and your faith in him. I think it's really interesting that we just saw in verse 27, Jesus says, no one can come to the Father but through me. That sounds really exclusive, and it is. And then in the next verse, he goes, oh, and by the way, y'all are welcome. Come on in. Let's go. He, it's, it's, it's a universal invite. Everyone can come. He's revealing the Father through offering an invitation to come in. So what is this labor? What is this work? It's it's a burden, And, and, and there could be lots of different things. And I don't think it's one, because none of the commentators could agree on what this is. Is the burden the law? Is the burden sin? Is it persecution? Is it past failures? Is it just simply trying to do life in your own strength? Whatever it is, it's your life has gotten heavy. The burden is weighing you down. So what is the first thing we must do? We must recognize that we have a burden. You must recognize you got something holding you down. You are yoked to something. What is it that you're yoked to? The good news is Jesus takes them all. So what are some of these things that you could be burdened down with? Well, you could have guilt over past sins. You could have remorse over the fact that you didn't do something the way you were supposed to. You could have fear, fear of illness, fear of dying, fear of failure, fear of the future. All of these things weigh us down. We have the load of pretending to be something that you're not, putting on a good face to come to church, but then the rest of the week knowing who you actually are. Thinking we have to hit a certain standard and always coming up short and going, there's no way Jesus could love me. This is an open invitation, but it's phrased in such a way that the invitation will only be an invitation to people who first go, oh yeah, that's me he's talking about. I'm the weary. I'm the heavy laden. So the first thing we must see is that if you are here today and you go, I can't do it, that's the perfect spot. Because Jesus says, I've done it. Come and yoke yourself to me. Spurgeon, again, from one of his many sermons on this The cry of the Christian religion is the simple word, come. The Jewish law said, go and break the commandments and you'll die. Go and keep them and you'll live. The law was a whip to drive you a direction. The gospel is the opposite. The gospel is the shepherd's way. He goes before his sheep and he says, follow me. Come, be with me. Spurgeon sums it up and says, the law repels, the gospel attracts. So here Jesus says, come to me, come follow me. I am the only one who can bear your burdens. No one else can do it. You for sure can't, and there is no one else in the universe who can. So let me bear the burden and yoke yourself to me. He's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that can do it. Jesus says, you are burdened. Then he moves on to what probably would seem crazy, So y'all have a very heavy, I don't know why I'm saying y'all all all day today, but anyway. (laughs) You all have stuff on you. You have this burden, and it's weighing you down. And Jesus goes, hey, I got the perfect solution. Let me give you a new one. Let me give you a different burden. That would be crazy from anyone but Jesus. But at this point, after 11 chapters, we expect some crazy. And it's probably not crazy. It's probably that we're crazy, and he's actually got it right where it needs to be. So look what he says in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. This word yoke has nothing to do with eggs. So this is not Jesus' breakfast order, okay? This is, a, this is a, a word that is used by farmers, by people that are in an agrarian culture. It is a piece of wood that goes to tie two oxen or horse or whatever together, In Palestine, they were made out of wood, and what they would do is they would bring the ox into a carpenter's shop, and they would take, and they'd put the wood over the top of the ox, and they would trace out exactly the size of the ox. And as a matter of fact, some scholars think Jesus might have done this. Wouldn't that be cool? He was making yokes for oxen as a carpenter. Remember, Jesus grew up as a carpenter. He spent nearly 30 years of his life doing that trade. So the the oxen would come in and they would would mark out the line of the yoke and then the ox would go away and then the carpenter would then sand it down so it fit perfectly. They would bring the oxen back and they would set it on them and it would need to fit the back and all the little lumps and everything else on the oxen so that it didn't chafe and it didn't rub and it didn't hurt the oxen because if that yoke didn't fit right, the ox wouldn't let it go and he would dig his heels in and keep himself from going forward. So Jesus says, take my yoke. Take my yoke on you. Put it on your shoulders. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I'm giving you my yoke. Put it on, okay? He says, no, come here and take my yoke. Put it on you. There's this this submission of saying, you're going to carry a load. You're going to submit to this responsibility, to my orders, to my direction. This is a choice. It's a responsibility. We must choose to take on the yoke. And if we think about it, this really is what it means to be a Christian. We say, I'm going to give you, Jesus, the full weight of my sins. Not just that, but I'm going to give you my lack of ability to follow your commands. And you then give me your spirit so that I can follow your commands. And I can be more like you. This call here that we see with this yoke is not come and do it yourself reform yourself make yourself better no it says you can't do it you cannot carry a yoke of any sort but when jesus is carrying the yoke and you're yoked to him then you can do what you need to do jesus gives us the ability to follow his commands by being yoked to him and his spirit so the cure is not no burden, but light burden. But it's the right light burden. I love this. It says, my yoke. Jesus says, this is my personal yoke. I want to be united to you. Think about that. He, he came down from heaven. This perfect son of God for all of eternity in God's presence, comes down here and he goes, I want the worst of the worst. I'm going to yoke myself to them and I'm going to make them golden. I'm going to make them great. What an incredible thing. No wonder we can sing about grace. No wonder we can sing about that. You know, the disciples were not the pick of the litter. We're not the pick of the litter. We are the ones that he has revealed himself to. I love that. Because everybody's yoked to something. What are you going to be yoked to? See, Jesus isn't leading us into no yoke. He's leading us into the right yoke, the one that we need. And his offer is sweet. It's light. He's drawing us to him. And on top of all that, he gets pleasure from it and the Lord gets pleasure from it and they're saying, yes, this is what I made you to do. This is what it was supposed to be like before sin entered this world. Be a part of this. So this yoke implies something you don't yoke up an oxen so that the oxen can go take a nap you yoke up the oxen to do work there's movement Jesus didn't say take up my easy chair and follow me he didn't say go lay down and take a nap and follow me I wish he would have but that's not what he says he says instead take my yoke this is moving this is this is action this is the continuous movement at what it means to be a follower of Christ what it means to be a believer. We yoke ourselves to him, and then he leads us into the work we need to do. And I love this. Jesus says, I will give it to you, and then he says, follow it up right after it, and you will receive. He's keeping his own promise. Let me illustrate this to you. There's a missionary to China. His name was Hudson Taylor. Very famous missionary. So as he's serving as a missionary, I would say, I don't know if he would say it like this, but he got saved as he was a missionary, right? So he had this view of God that he had to work a certain way, and he had to do a certain thing, and then lo and behold, this verse became alive to him. He came to Jesus with his burden and said, I can't do this. And Jesus said, exactly, yoke yourself to me. And this is what what, uh, someone who saw what happened to him said. When he finally got his rest in Christ, he became a joyous man. He was a bright and happy Christian. He had been toiling and burdening one, a burdening one before, but there was no rest of his soul. He was resting now in Jesus and letting him do the work, which made all the difference. When he spoke to us in meetings after that, a new power seemed to flow from him. And in the practical things of life, there was a peace that possessed him at all times. How was his faith strengthened? Was it by striving after faith? No, it was by resting on the one who was faithful. See, this is the picture of what it means to have this rest. So we need to stop here. What does rest mean? Because this word is used all the time. People say it's for vacations, and we all know if you have kids, there's no rest on your vacation. But it's vacations, or it's lazy time, or it's stretching out on a beach, or it's just sleeping. This is not what's meant here. When he says, you will find rest for your souls... It's probably better to say you will experience refreshing deep down in your soul. This is not a stop activity. It's doing activity with the right motivation, with the right heart, with that refreshing that wells up inside of us. We all know what that feels like to a certain degree, don't we? We know what it feels like to do what God has called us to do. You're not worried about whether you got eight hours of sleep the night before. You're just doing And the Lord gives us that that power. See, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were promised rest. Where were they promised rest? In the promised land. So when they got to Canaan and they entered in the promised land, did they just kick back and have a vacation and time off? No, there was work to be done. The difference was, was when they were in the promised land, they had gotten the promise, they were in the place that they belonged, and they knew we don't have to worry anymore about trying to find food and whether this and whether that. And wandering around in circles, we are home. It's that same feeling for us as well. See, Jesus didn't escape work in his life. He worked the entire time. But yet he had that rest and refreshment in everything he did. See, we're not promised as believers to never have illness, to never have calamity. Instead, we are told that we will not be crushed by it. We will not be driven to despair. Instead, he says, I will refresh you. Jesus offers his disciples the ability through him to overcome fear and anxiety and uncertainty and meaningless. So taking on the yoke means we are working, we are walking, we are moving. We will carry what he tells us to carry, even our own cross. And I like this. Life may be uncomfortable, hard, and trying, but irony of ironies, when we walk Jesus' way, we'll find refreshment. That comes with forgiveness and renewal that comes with purposeful living and a rest that comes while working See this relationship with God changes everything having a purpose having meaning is a part of that refreshing and he fills us up from inside So you might say well, okay, that sounds great Why should I take this yoke on why should I trust this man? What what what, what reason do I have? See, Jesus, of course, being wiser than all of us combined, he goes right into it, and he says, because I am gentle and lowly. I am the one who's gentle and lowly in heart. See, he became lowly like us to be with us. The God of the universe became incarnate, which means simply to take on flesh. He came low to be with us. And this is his heart towards us. This is the only place in the Bible where it says Jesus' heart condition towards us he says i am kind i'm gentle i'm lowly i love you with tenderness oh how he loves us see he came to us and if we look at it this verse verse 28 come to me take your yoke upon me learn from me because i'm gentle and sorry verse 29 it's really a picture of the gospel come to me as i came to you matthew one through four god came to us he's saying come to me Take my yoke upon you. This is what Jesus did when he said, here's my sermon on the mount. Here's what it means to be a kingdom member. Matthew 5 through 7. He says, and learn from me. This is what Jesus did in Matthew 8 through 10 where he just said, here's all the things I've done. Be like me. And then lastly, Matthew 11, and then in the future we'll talk about Matthew 12. He says, you see who I am. I am gentle and lowly at heart. He says, this is who I am. Come to me, take on my yoke, learn from me. I am gentle and lowly at heart. And then we get to verse 30. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A minute ago I said that Jesus was kind. And you're like, okay, that's, that's good, that's a good ver-. We We know that Jesus is kind. But where is that in this passage? Well, let me show you. This word easy, for my yoke is easy, is actually the Greek word kind. And so it says, for my yoke, for Jesus' yoke, is a kind yoke. See, that good yoke fits perfectly on the back of the oxen. Jesus' yoke will be kind to our shoulders. Not only is it cut rightly, but he is the one that does the heavy lifting. He is the one that does the work. So our burden is light. It does not diminish our accountability to bear the yoke, but it's the fact that he's doing the work on it. One author puts it like this. His yoke is kind, his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke and his burden is a non-burden. This burden is light. It is not hard to carry. So these are paradoxes, aren't they? Jesus says, burden is easy. That's a weird way of putting those words together. My heavy burden is very light. Really? Sermon on the Mount is easy? It's light? How do we make sense of this? Well, this only makes sense after Christ has died and risen from the grave. Because he has now bore that burden to death and it is taken off of us. He is alive. He is not a dead savior that's in the ground somewhere and I hope he covered my sins. No, he's a risen savior who's doing what right now? He is interceding for us in front of God. So Jesus offers relief to his disciples from the burden of religious observation as a means of obtaining self worth, learning from Jesus is more like rest than like work because Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's meek and humble. He lets us know his heart. He is ready to help us if we are willing to be humble, if we are willing to say, I can't do it. The path to life is not doing, it's done. The easiest way to fail at life is to think you have to do it, do it and do it and do it. Instead, following Christ is about going, he did it, it is done. So what do we do with this? Well, I got five quick things to do with this. The first one is we must recognize our burdens. See, when we see that our burdens and what they are, we will see there is no hope of us carrying them ourselves. So if you're here and you're burdened down, If you're not a believer, you've never given that burden to Christ. If you are a believer, you're trying to wear a second yoke. And it's not going to work. So recognize that you have a burden, small or big. The second thing we do is we repent of that sin. When we put a yoke on ourselves that the world has, or we, we take on the yoke of the world, we are doing the sin that we talked about last week and the week before, which is unbelief. This is the big sin. This is the biggest of big. It's not believing in Jesus Christ. But the best part is is that when you repent of it, it's gone. It's taken away. That burden is gone for both believers and unbelievers. Remember, believers, you need to repent continuously because you sin continuously. Unbelievers, you need to repent of your, your unbelief and latch yourself on to Jesus through that yoke. Third, you need to renounce yourself. You need to renounce yourself. Like a child. Go running to the Father in the middle of the night. Put your arms around him and say, I need help, Father. He will welcome you. He does not turn us away. One of the things I love best about it is when Jesus tells us to pray, he doesn't say take a number. He doesn't say, okay, I'll serve you on the second Tuesday in July, but that's the only day you get my attention. No, the Father's attention is infinite. He has infinite attention for each of us and so we can run to him with our burdens fourth we need to rest in christ we need to allow ourselves to feel the rest we need to allow ourselves to let the lord refresh us which means we need to not buy the world's view of what rest is This doesn't mean bad things won't happen. It just means that instead of my world coming to an end because bad things have happened, I know that Christ is still on the throne and his refreshing is inside of me because of that. And then fifth, we get to rejoice in him. We rejoice in him forever. We get to experience the joy. See, our rest is an eternal rest. Eventually, we're gonna be in heaven if we're in Christ And that rest will be eternal. But heaven works backwards into this life. And the more of our life that we allow God to inhabit, the more his presence makes your life like heaven. Because heaven is not a beautiful whatever the world imagines to be. Heaven is in God's presence with no sin present. And that's what we get to experience here. Let us rejoice in him. These are our sweet promises. We should rejoice and praise him. So this carpenter, who is our shepherd, has carved a kind yoke for us to share with him. It's perfect for us, it's exactly what we need. He has made this yoke because of his heart towards us. Will you submit to the yoke? Will you lay down the yoke that you've tried to make fit, that's rubbing you raw, that's weighing you down? Maybe you're down on your knees, maybe you've fallen on your face. Will you be humble? and take his kind yoke on your shoulders. For there and only there will you find the refreshment that your heart, your soul longs for. Come to Jesus, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. What an incredible promise. Lord, it would be just enough that you see us and you know that we have burdens, but Lord, for you to come along and your son to come along and take that burden from us and give, him, give us his burden, this easy, this kind yoke. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We can't thank you enough for the grace that you extend us in this burden, this yoke. I pray that, Lord, we would get this. I know I need to get this more. Help us to not trust in what the world says and burden ourselves down with more of the cares of the world. Instead, to yoke ourselves fully to you. Thank you, Lord, for these words. In your name, amen.